Hey guys, I don't know if you're like me, but I love Count the Dings and everything it has to offer. I just can't find everything I need. You know, I know about Cinephobe and I know about the mailbag. And I know about Bomb, but that's all we do, right? I mean, no, we do so much more. What? Yeah, absolutely. If you sign up, patreon.com slash count the dings, you'll find a plethora of other content, fresh content, extended content, the OG pod overflow, the Cinephobe cold opens that we've taken and made their own thing to live only there the re-watchingtons bomb and it's full Ooh. and unadulterated cut early drops of cinephobe episodes and so much more said the og pod now is it new or is it old mace i'm glad you asked that it is a new incarnation mm-hmm. of the old og pod oh. so it's me zach trey Waz, tom i love those guys just like we always were going back to the true hoop days mm-hmm. we're recreating that magic recapturing it and putting it back out we're talking hoops we're talking pop culture and most importantly we're talking for 40 minutes for free mm-hmm. but then another specific patreon exclusive segment for every one of those episodes funny enough about that og pod you're getting tom and trey on mondays you're getting me and waz aka zosny on wednesdays a means floating in between i'm a floater you never know when you're gonna get a mean in those so you gotta listen to them all and what if i'm not sure what maze looks like because i've always thought he's a fat man with a fedora he's got a weird voice how can i see for myself what this maze character actually looks like it's crazy you don't know the answer to this mm. because it's the cinephobe pod youtube page what the ct5s on the cinephobe pod youtube page you can look at all of us you can get all the og pods on youtube too at count the dings one on youtube at cinephobe pod on youtube patreon.com slash count the dings gets you everything all in one feed you can link it to your spotify and now enjoy the show This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tom, are you a parody guy or are you a dominance guy? I'm a dynasty guy. Give me Stephen Curry and the Warriors. Give me the Lakers, Showtime Lakers. I'm a big dominant guy. I like dominance too. I want to see the best, do their best as often as possible. And we're not having a lot of that this season. Pack your knives. I'm Kevin Arnovitz. And I'm Tom Haberstroh. Tom, pursuant to the question I asked you at the top, very interesting development here in Top Chef Season 19. Had I told you that this week that we would have two judges groups, one Evelyn J. and Jackson, the other Buddha, Ashley, and Sam, one of them is chopping block, one of them is top, 
I think you might have gotten it wrong. Totally wrong. I mean, you look at our, our top picks this year in the draft. Um, I had Ashley and Buddha in the bottom. And of course, Sam, we'll get to Sam later. Uh, this was not a good week for Team Haberster, but also not a good week for just our uh, prognostications from the draft because we had Robert and Sarah and Joe. They were in the middle, right, for your squad. And then Ashley and Buddha, my first two picks were just, it was disaster zone. I was I was really sweating bullets there at the end. And, you know, it was a very surprising last week with Damar sweeping last week's episode. And this week we saw Jay, who was my third to last pick, come out on top. So we are not good at this whole drafting thing, especially me. It's it's not been a good year for Team Haberstraff. But even beyond just the drafting, again, we're both terrible. I have Robert and Sarah as my top two picks. We haven't heard a peep out of them in weeks. It's more just the contestants themselves, irrespective of where we would have picked them. You know, just haven't there hasn't been any show of dominance yet. We haven't seen someone just park themselves at the top. You can pencil them in for a top three finish. You can pretty much expect you're not going to see the bottom unless it's some Fercocta team exercise or something like that. You know, uh, it's not even just a draft. Like, I don't know that there's any transcendently talented chef in this season. I hope to be proved wrong. It's great to see just someone break out and, and just uh, – we always talk about that kind of like LeBron thing where week in, week out, you don't know how they even can think of how to do that. Um, their, their skills, their creativity, their dominance is so pronounced that it's just like – you know we were talking about Melissa right a couple of seasons ago or, or even of Altagio. You know, we, we've seen that before. I don't know that there is a, an exceptional chef in this season. I know it's an early season controversial statement, Tom. I just ain't seeing it. I'm still holding out hope for Buddha. I really am. This week, Buddha misfired on his fried samosa. It the puff pastry didn't work. I still think that he's got them the highest upside of all the of all the people on this on this uh, on this season. But Kevin, let's let's go from the top here on this episode. Really confusing. No quick fire, Kevin? You know what's funny? I never think that like quick fire is essential, but I, I miss it when it's not here. I miss you so damn much. <laughs> I miss being with you. I miss being near you. I miss your laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I, miss, I miss your scent. I miss your musk. When this all gets sorted out, I think you and me should get an apartment together. Just take it easy, champ. Why don't you stop talking for a while? It's a little bizarre. Did you get the sense that maybe they did a quick fire and they had to like retrofit this episode because it didn't work? And so they had to kind of uh, call an audible here because... You know, I heard Padma in the beginning say, hey, there's no quick fire, but it's very odd to this this early in the game, just abandon the quick fire. They abandoned quick fires at the end of the season, not at the very beginning. So I, I was very confused um, because it didn't seem like this episode 
uh, needed more time for the elimination challenge. It wasn't like they were preparing three dishes. They were preparing one dish. And I guess you could say that the the ethnic supermarkets that they were going to required more time in the episode in the elimination challenge but it really did seem surprising that we just we just didn't have a quick fire today well it's a 43 minute episode which is sort of regulation for our network there are still 13 contestants right so there is there is always a problem that if you want to give a reasonable amount of time to each chef, their process. Here I am shopping. Here I am thinking and conceptualizing about the dish. Here I am doing my prep. Here's my thoughts going into the service that it's really hard to cram that in if you're going to go 43 minutes. I I don't know what the new strategy from Bravo is and we would have to ask them uh, because, you know, in the the past, one thing that's been nice about sort of the recent movement in television is, yeah, if a network wants to go an hour 10 on an episode of something, fine. You know, the, the old days of eight o'clock, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock are kind of down. They'll, they'll be happy to push the next program in, into the 10, 15 uh, part of the hour. But here it is. It was when we opened it up. It is a 43 minute episode. And that was my only explanation is when you have 13 chefs. Uh, but it, it very well could be right. There could be an explanation. Quick fire gone wrong. Um, production, who knows. But uh, it, it was interesting, and I missed it. I, I really, especially this early in the season, Tom, because I, I want to gather as much information as I can about the chefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with each challenge, be it a quick fire, be it team, even some, you know, smell the herb blindfolded challenge, you're still kind <laughs> yeah. of kind of framing your thoughts about each chef testing. And I still feel like, and we talked about it, the first week was a little odd in the sense that it was team, the beef. Like I don't yet, and maybe that's my, maybe that's where I'm coming from with, hey, I don't know that there's a dominant chef. Maybe there haven't been any opportunities really to to demonstrate dominance. Uh, Though I did really like the elimination this week. I I, I love, you know, I, I was thinking about uh, night markets are just the coolest thing. And I, I made a list of my five favorite night markets that I, I've traveled to. Um, cause it, it's just Tom, what's better than a night market? You're, um, it's basically a combination of sort of nightlife and food court. And, you know, they tend to, it, it tends to be sultry if you're there in the summer or it's a tropical location. Uh, they're tourists, but definitely the locals do it. It's not just a tourist thing. Um, Bangkok to me is the greatest night market. And there's so many, I can't even remember which one I went to. Dark Horse favorite night market. Wait, 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 wait. Just pausing here for a second, Kevin. You have a power rankings of night markets? Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is like the first thing I do. <laughs> I love this. When I get to yeah. a location, it's like, where and when is the night market? Where's the best night market? I'm not as into the crafts as I am into the food, but like like one of my favorites is Lua Prabang in Lao, right? Because it's like, I mean, it's a lot of crafts, but it's just like the food is great. And it's also kind of a little rowdier, like a lot of locals drinking Lao beer. And like there's gambling oh. at Lua Prabang night market. So it's like park casino, park market. Right. Like there's a lady with cigarettes dangling out of her mouth, spinning this little wheel of fortune. And, <laughs> and it's like not the tourists, it's the locals <laughs> playing. So um, Hong Temple Street in Kowloon, Hong Kong, one of the best night markets you'll ever go to. Just just in Hong Kong is just I, next to Singapore, I think, for like for food in general as cities. It's got to be the top of the power rankings. Uh, you know what's a great um, night market is in Seoul. The Myeongdong Night Market, one of my very, very favorites. I uh, went there the first night I got in. I'd been in Mongolia for 18 days, and I'd lost 12 pounds. Um, 
on the on the diet of grizzle and potato soup in, in Mongolia every single day. Mm, yeah. And kept alive only by the la- like the Lara bars that I brought from home. So that was a great night market. I'm not going to go on the Mongolian diet, by the way. Don't go on the Mongolian diet. It's, it's terrible. That doesn't sound like fun. And then my final, the really sneaky good night market in a place you might not expect it, in Stonetown in Zanzibar. Great night market. Also, great selection of spices because it's like the spice trade. And I mean, that is geared towards more tourists, but shit, I'm a tourist. It's okay. Uh, but the Zanzibar night market really below the radar. So those are like my five favorite night market locations. And we can now resume to regularly schedule programming. But I just, this is one of my favorite challenges for that reason. Kevin, I thought you were going to say, you know, a sneaky pick, one of the more underrated night markets in the, in the world is Jackson, Jacksonville, Florida. <laughs> I thought that's where you were going to go with that. I was like waiting for like Raleigh, North Carolina. You know, I just did. I didn't know where you're going with. But yes, that's this is why I love you, Kevin, is that you not only have been to night markets in just about every country in the world, you have an underrated night market, uh, the sleeper pick for night markets. So thank you for that. Zanzibar. You got it. So I really like this. And, and so let's just kind of set it up, Tom. Chinese, Japanese, Indian, Filipino, Vietnamese. 13 chefs draw knives uh, and they get assigned their uh, respective cuisine. Yeah, and I was pleasantly surprised to see Jackson. I know basically nothing about Vietnamese cuisine. And on top of that, I got COVID a few months ago and I lost my sense of smell and taste. Pho is one of my favorite foods on the planet, but I just unfortunately do not know much else about Vietnamese cuisine. So when we think of taste, generally what we're talking about is smell. What your tongue can taste, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, spicy, umami. My tongue is pretty much back. The smell really is not, so I can't actually taste anything. So Jackson, he's like stuffing his face in whatever he's got, just his nose. He's inhaling food, Kevin, because he can't use his sense of smell. And he's got Vietnamese along with Sarah and Evelyn. What an amazing job by Jackson. It really was just an incredible underdog story of Jackson here. And exactly why you picked him is that even though he doesn't have his sense of taste, he doesn't have his sense of smell. He gets Vietnamese food, something that he doesn't have much experience in eating. I mean, he a little bit maybe, but he really did a nice job here. I was feeling really bad for him initially, but he came with it today. Yeah. No taste buds, no problem. I had three early takeaways uh, uh, when seeing the assignments. I mean, one is we got a home game for Joe. Yeah, uh, Joe, who's acknowledged she is she is ethnically Chinese, but but essentially Filipino. That's where her family comes from. So she gets a little uh, home court. Though she also allows the fact that there is sort of a reluctance that it, that it's somewhat intimidating to cook Filipino food, and you, you sort of sometimes hold back. Number two, Nick seems really excited. Right, he draws Japanese, doesn't know much about Japanese food, but you know notes that uh, karage is fried chicken and something he loves to cook. So he seems really comfortable. He gets Japanese, but you know what? Hey, I'll just do my thing, as he says. And then Buddha professes to be very excited to be cooking Indian. Uh, He is of of Malaysian descent. Uh, His mother's half Indian, half half Chinese. Uh, But it is in this show, as you know, one of the kind of funny – perpetual storylines is, Oy, I have to cook Indian food for Padma. And Sam and Luke, uh, who also get assigned the Indian uh, category, seem a little less excited to get Indian. Uh, but Buddha kind of, he, he wants to run with it. He's excited. Um, and in, in the uh, in the preliminary sort of, hey, you can consult with some of these night market chefs, 
uh, and get some ideas. He has a million questions for one of our guest judges um, who cooks Indian food. Among them is, hey, if I'm making a samosa, do I fry or do I bake? Yeah. And he went with the wrong decision there. Clearly went with the wrong decision. And you could see Luke, Kevin, you could see Luke just writing down notes and just silently in the back of the classroom, just being like, I'm going to let the teacher's pet ask all the questions and I'm just going to steal all of those answers for myself. And the irony is Buddha fucked up. Buddha fucked up royally. And here's Luke, who I felt like he was a fish out of water. Luke was on this one. Like he hasn't been doing well. He's been spinning his wheels uh, up until now. And he's got to cook Indian food for Padma. And here comes Buddha. I would have expected 100% that Buddha would just kick his ass on this one, but it didn't work out that way. And Buddha, he got shaken a little bit. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, when you're looking at the field, uh, Luke did much better this time around, but Buddha, I don't know what happened there. He, he, this thing, it seems like something where he could have just tasted his food. This is always a big mistake on Top Chef is, is chef testants get too in love with their ideas and then they forget to actually eat their food and taste it. And I feel like if Buddha actually tasted his his uh, flash fried or fried phyllo dough pastry uh, samosa, he would have realized that that does not work. Not only was it just way too hot um, and oily on the outside, but the inside was just cold and uncooked. Uh, you got to eat your food. You got to eat your food. And I was just stunned from that performance from Buddha compared to Luke. There's this adage that never ask a question you don't want to know the answer to. So when you ask an Indian chef, should I fry or bake the puff pastry? And the chef emphatically replies, you bake it. Yeah. And then you do go decide to fry it because there, the interpretation in Malaysian cuisine is there's a similar – item and that they do deep fry it. Uh, don't ask a question you don't want the answer to. If you want to fry it, fry it. But you know, you, you got a resounding result. Buddha in ending up on the bottom with his uh, puff pastry that was both greasy on the outside and uncooked on the inside. You know, it, it was interesting, Tom. He, he, he demonstrated this very specific defiance that we get sometimes on Top Chef, often from the most confident chefs. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about how there's this spat of new chefs who are like, oh, I'm not so good. This sort of uh, self-deprecating chef that – younger chef that lacks confidence. Buddha certainly isn't in that category. And even as he's going down, he's saying, I tasted it. I liked it. You know, never mind that none of the judges did. And I'm that kind of – and we'll talk about it kind of – Sam has a, has a different – cousin of this condition. But but with Buddha, it was very interesting. Like, I didn't know whether to kind of uh, respect him for his defiance or just be like, dude, like, like, listen, you know, don't ask for advice that you don't want to take. Don't ask for feedback that you don't agree with. Um, maybe you need to do a little self-examination here. Like, you're probably as – I agree with you, Tom. Best upside chef in the contest. You got to have a little pause here. Like the guy turned out an absolute stinker and didn't know. Padma goes, it was a valiant effort. It was a valiant effort to make this samosa. And anytime someone says it was a valiant effort, you know, they didn't like it. It's always bad news after someone says it was a valiant effort. Look, Buddha, um, if he did taste it and he liked it, then probably there's an inconsistency issue here is that he was cooking it and didn't cook it consistently for the different dishes person by person. So 
you know, I could interpret this Buddha, his, his performance here, his style as confidence, but uh, there is a certain, certain point where it turns into hubris, Kevin. And to me, he's bordering on the hubris where he's just, when he's asking those questions, you know what he's doing? He's flexing. He's like, hey, should I do this or should I do it that way or should I do it this way or should I do it that way? And what he's doing is he likes to hear him talk about how much he knows about Indian food and he wasn't interested in the answers because if he was interested in the answers, then obviously he would have done baking and not frying. The most disappointing chef of the week for me, the chef on your team but one I really like a lot is Ashley. Yep. And it was disappointing for two reasons. One is it was entirely uncreative. I mean, just an absolute – even before I didn't know she wasn't going to execute it well, I was snoozing. Oh, yeah, I, I'm going to take some top sirloin, kind of coat it in some potato starch and fry it, and then I'm going to take this daikon – like, like Tom. I mean, listen, I know Japanese cuisine can be a little simple in, it, in its sort of conceptions and – whatever. Yawn. I was falling asleep as she was explaining what she was going to do. Like the judges are sitting there, um, you know, sort of listening to her and they look bored just listening. She sounds bored talking about it. And as if that's not enough, she doesn't execute it. Like Tom, I'm a really elementary Japanese chef. I mean, I'm talking like novice upon novices. Yeah. A little salt, sugar, you know, and vinegar is what you do with your daikon. I mean, pickled daikon is about as basic an ingredient as you can get. Kevin, she put a Rubik's Cube of daikon on her skewer. I mean, what is going on? You knew that sirloin was going to be stringy and chewy. I could see it from my way. The judge even warns her. These consultations with knowledgeable people who know your cuisine are only useful insofar as you actually listen to them. And I was just floored because I, I think in terms of upside, like I've really been interested. I was very disappointed you nabbed her, um, you know, with your two and three picks. And I thought in some ways, though she didn't go home, she was the most disappointing chef. You know, at least Buddha for all of his just delusions. Yeah, he tried to do something interesting. She tried to do something boring and couldn't even execute it. Yeah, that was extremely disappointing. I'm going to do a mala style beef. How are you cooking um, it? I've got some sweet potato starch, and I'm going to coat it in sweet potato Oh, so I see your face. No, no, I'm, uh, I'm listening. I'm, I'm just trying I'm to I'm going to coat it in doing. sweet potato starch and hopefully like get like a nice crisp on the outside, very light. Are you going to marry that uh, beef tomorrow? Yeah, or gonna... I'm, I'm thinking I should, based on this, your, this, the this, faces this. that you're making. So you're going to fry it? Yeah. Don't make it too, too tough, though. OK. Chef Hung with his very cool hair. He's worried that this top sirloin could end up being a little chewy. Good luck. Can't wait. After you start to prep, you have so little time to pivot. Everything smells really great. Looks tasty. Good luck. Thank you, Chef. Thank you. I, I, there's nothing I can do at that point. I'm always so confident until Tom comes over. No one likes to have that you know, one-on-one -on -one with Tom and everyone gets a little upset after Tom gives the look or, or hung when gives her the, you know, very confusing, like, are you really, you really going to cook it that way? Why, why don't you marinate it this way? Like, that's when I, I got really nervous about Ashley is she did seem very impacted by those reviews and she's almost over downloading their information that they're giving her without actually like doing anything. She get, she got inside her own head and it, she seemed flustered in a way 
that made me really scared for her going forward. Um, she was worried about Tom and, and, and Hung's review. And it just seemed like this was an off week for her. And I'm very worried about my team. I mean, Buddha, big mistake this week. Ashley just floundered under the pressure. And then. Hello, listener. Guess who's back? It's me, Anthony Mays, your favorite butcher turned podcast producer. And I'm here to talk to you about ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the most convenient way to get high quality meat and seafood that you can trust delivered straight to your doorstep, free shipping, vacuum sealed packaging. It's ready to go right then. It's ready to pop in the freezer. You get exclusive member deals and a variety of high quality cuts at an amazing value. Going to the grocery store can be a huge pain. You're usually in a rush at an inconvenient time. You're waiting in line at the meat counter. You're taking a number. Maybe this place doesn't have a number. You're jostling with fellow customers. You're trying to get that ribeye that you want or that nice piece of salmon. Maybe the butcher that you're dealing with has a bad attitude or something. I don't know. That was never me. I promise. But maybe it happens. Butcher Box takes all of that out of the picture. You are always prepared with meat and seafood in the freezer, and you're not going to find quality for this price anywhere else other than ButcherBox. So sign up at butcherbox.com dings, D-I-N-G-S, and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com dings and use code dings, D-I-N-G-S, to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. I guess we have to talk about it. Sam. Dude, I f***ed up. I have potatoes on the stove. My dish is called Sam Alu. Sam with potato. Woo! Woo! Yeah, before we get to Sam, I want to talk about Hung, who you mentioned, um, who was the guest uh, chef. A very early winner um, in, uh, in, in Top Chef. What's interesting about him is he's had a very uninteresting career since then. I mean, here's a guy who 15 years ago, I think, wins the best fish award at at the Bacustor, right? Like one of the, the foremost fishing uh, cooking competitions in the world. You know, now he's got this restaurant. It's funny. I didn't even know it existed. It's been, it's in my city. It's been open almost three years. Granted, he had COVID, but it's called Warrior. And it's one of those sort of, frankly, if, you, if folks know Los Angeles, uh, you know, on the Sunset Strip, there's always a line of mediocre restaurants with great kind of showy design, not even great. Sometimes it's a little gauche, to be honest, um, sort of uh, they're, they're lounges with food. And so they're scenes. Um, you know, he's been the executive chef at Catch. I know Catch is a favorite of our NBA folks, you know, Tom. And there's one in Miami, as you know, obviously. And there's one in New York. Catch, not a great culinary destination, obviously a place that, that is very popular and a crowd pleaser. But, you know, for a guy who, you know, has an interesting background and he just hasn't done a hell of a lot that's overly interesting in the last 10 years or so. Um, I think he opened a uh, Asian street food restaurant in, I, I believe, Palm Beach or Disney Springs or or somewhere in Florida. 
Well, Kevin, he does have one thing going for him. He's got silver hair. Oh, he does. Yeah. I don't know who made the point on the show, but I love, is that a thing? Is the silver hair thing? Like I I find people who have silver hair to be like 15% more attractive. Well, this is like the Roger Sterling factor from Mad Men. Tom, that was supposed to be me. That was supposed to be me. You did not know me when I had hair. No, I've only known you as as bald Kevin. Yeah, that was supposed to be me. I had like a massive afro coming out of high school, like massive, like Gabe Kapler, massive. And uh, I started losing my hair in 2003, like out of nowhere. My 99-year-old grandfather still has a thick head of silver hair. Oh, so you could have been a silver fox? I this is... I could have been a silver fox. And wow. instead, I'm just like a freaking cue ball. And it's it's really depressing. Well, it was good to see him. He won Top Chef Miami. And, you know, when with this particular episode, he was a perfect fit. And I think he gave some good feedback. Yes. By the way, very much enjoyed him as a judge. Was just like going back and saying, oh, yeah, whatever happened to that guy, you know, when I saw him. And I was like, well, this isn't very interesting. Uh, but by the way, Life is young. He's in his early 40s. There might be great work ahead. I, mm. I'm not here to kind of drag him. I just like was disappointed to see like, yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I didn't even know Warrior existed. It's the restaurant in Los Angeles. Um, it has a vegan menu. I should I should go check it out. Sam. 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 Hi. Hi. What's up? What's up? Do you grill potatoes a lot? You know, um, I don't. This is the exciting. This is the new. This is something different. Anyone can boil potato. Who grills a potato? Exactly. No one. No, no one, one grills a potato. <laughs> Would you ever grill a potato again? After this? Hell no. <laughs> oh, Sam. Sam, I think you should stick to teaching kids about food because this ain't your thing. Top Chef is not your thing. I mean, um, it should be a red flag that his favorite food in the world is potatoes. And I love potatoes, but like, is there anything more bland in terms of cooking than the potato? Like I like French fries, but he has an obsession over potatoes and he can't even get the potato right. Like that is such a mistake is the fact that he has his, um, Vindulu, Sam Delu, whatever you want to call it. And he forgets the potatoes in the pot. Kevin, I don't know what to think about Sam because to me, I would watch a spinoff show of Sam just because he's always happy and he's always spinning things in a positive direction. And you always want that cheerleader in your life that just will always be positive and give you that energy. And also Sam needs a whole lot more positive energy because it's just, it's not going right for him on this show. And when he puts the the potatoes in the pot and then forgets about them, holy shit, what a disaster. When that, the dish is supposed to be very potato forward. And then he grills, he grills the potatoes, <laughs> grills the potatoes and tries to spin it that it was a good thing. Kevin, I love the one-liners from, from Sam, but it does seem like he's a little cartoonish for me. Like this show, the Sam thing, it just, oh man, oh, I, I don't even know how to, how to articulate the, the Sam experience. Maybe you can do a better job. I mean, listen, like you, I like Sam's elfin energy. I really do. Um, but but you're doing Vindaloo, which you call Samloo. First of all, Sam needs to understand, look, obviously, <laughs> it's one of the cliches of cooking and it's a cliche for a good reason. You know, food is an expression of yourself. But you're a professional chef. It's not about you. 
It's about the people eating your food. Oh, so the yeah. Samalu thing, yeah. again, cloying and adorable and just kind of obnoxious, right? Samalu. Secondly, right, the prep day is about prep. You have basically, from my understanding, the way you're describing your dish going in, you've got Vindaloo with a with a, basically a pomegranate chutney. So you got that chutney and then you have the most important ingredient, potatoes. And then you forget that they're on the boil pot. I mean, that that's just... That that is a level of absent-mindedness and and cluelessness that I can't even possibly conceive. If you're on a reality competition show and you've you've set aside your life or shut down your life for several weeks to do this, um, but but there's even more than that, right? Like like listen, there are tens of millions of people, Tom, in this country and in North America with positive energy, but there are only a handful of them that can produce world-class cooking. So which are you going to take? I'm going to take the ones with the world-class cooking capacity, right? He also indulges one of my least favorite brands of, of, of sort of – and it's not just about Top Chef. I mean it's everywhere in the world. These people who are like, I'm pushing boundaries. You don't like a grilled potato. Never mind that <laughs> potatoes should never be grilled. I mean there's no fat really in a potato. It's just starch like you're just drying and dehydrating the thing out. Like – no, I'm pushing back. Yes, yes, there was supposed to be sunchoke puree on this dish, but I thought I'd push boundaries and use spackling paste because that's pushing boundaries. There's this entire – can I just go old man for a second, Tom? Go. You know, there's this entire movement in the culture. I'm seeing people doing unfunny comedy saying I'm pushing the boundaries of comedy by not making it funny, right? Like like it's, it's one of my least favorite – sort of artistic tropes, that you're pushing boundaries. Yes, yes. This is new movement in cuisine, Tom. It used to be that cuisine tasted good, it was good. But no, that's too... I, I, I'm going to go slate pitch, right? Like, now it's... There's this great new movement in food, Tom, where the food tastes like shit because we're pushing boundaries. I've had enough of this good-tasting food, right? That's boring. Anyone can make good-tasting good food. I'm going to make good food that tastes like shit. And it's just my least favorite. I mean, you wrap it up in the, hey, I'm just being true to myself, man. I'm just self-actualizing. This is the new. Like his his routine that I found endearing the first two and a half episodes, by the time we got midway through this episode, just got tiresome. And I never thought I'd say this because, again, I like his elfin Muppet persona. It's cute. I'm happy to see him go, Tom. Yeah, but there's no other way he can go, right, Kevin? There's almost like a a last resort explanation in, in all of this, right? Like he was drawing empty. There's no rationalization for doing grilled potatoes and expecting that to taste good. In front of Padma and Tom and Gail, you're doing grilled potatoes? And, and Tom made the comment, you know, grilled potatoes shouldn't be a thing, period. What are you making? I got inspired yesterday when I found out aloo meant potato. So I was like, oh, if I put my twist on it, Sam's take on a potato curry. So Sam, aloo. Yes. Sam's potato. Sam's potato. Very sweet. Okay. So today I'm making Sam aloo with a chutney made with grape, pomegranate, mint, and cilantro. Did you steam the potatoes or did you boil no, them? No, the potatoes. I thought to myself, I need to put on a show. I need people to smell what I'm cooking. So I just grilled it. I seasoned it nicely with oil, salt, just grilled. Okay, thank nice. you so thank you. much. 
Thank you. Samalu. The problem is the potato, the alu. The alu is undercooked. And grilled potatoes have nothing to do in a potato curry. Yeah. The reason shouldn't be a thing. Period. Yeah. When you make curry, all the flavor, the spices go inside the potato. It's confusing. Yeah. And Padma also had this amazing. Okay. When he's like, I, you know, everyone needs to see a show, and Padma's like, uh, like if I could just bottle up that response from Padma. Okay. Just, just so like, no, this is not working. Sam, yeah, he's um, he's someone that I think I was glad to see on the show as as a certain uh, comedic relief, comic relief here uh, in, the, in the early going. But it really just seemed like he was amateur hour, like like that dish that he produced. Kevin felt like one of his kid students making that dish. He did not seem like the expert, the culinary expert here. It seemed like some kid, a five-year-old on Top Chef Junior. I don't even think that would have placed in the top three on Top Chef Junior. Tom, I've said it before, and my heuristic will always be, especially early in these Top Chef seasons, if me, Kevin Arnabitz, wouldn't have been eliminated, something's wrong. Yeah. I firmly believe that while I probably finish on the bottom in this challenge, I think I could have beaten Sam. And to me, that's the great standard, right? Like, like. You know, if, if if I wouldn't be sent home, something's wrong. Like, and that's the thing. And and I, I going back to the top of the show. One of my concerns about this year and this season is that we're not going to see the depth of talent. That we're not going to see just like the blow me away. Oh my god, how did anyone even think to prepare that or conceive of that dish? Um, but let's talk about some of the. There were some really good dishes here, and and I, I'm very excited about Evelyn. Um, We'll start with her. She did a really gutsy dish in, in this sense. Does anyone really – is anyone really uh, excited about poached chicken salad? On a sesame crisp? Yeah. Right, just, because think about it. You, you've got these like – oh, you know, Robert's marinade and you know, chicken thighs and, and everyone's got these really rich savory. Everyone's talking about big flavors. Poaching chicken is is a great way to get kind of clean. Like if you do Hananese chicken, you know, Singapore style, but, but it's chancy in the sense that you're not locking in a lot of flavor there. What you're basically saying is I'm going to use this chicken as a canvas to do other things. And that's chancy in a, in a, di- in a, in a challenge where there's a lot of really interesting flavor going on. And she does that with cilantro. I mean, we yeah. give her a waiver. It is Vietnamese. So nothing we can do there um rambutan and then she adds in a little personal touch an avocado crema and then serves it on a sesame crisp i mean this is i don't think people realize how gutsy yes this dish was this is the kind of thing that could have gotten you sent home and not only does it not get her sent home it gets her on the top three i'm really excited for her there seemed to be you know it's funny she has a real kind of hopeful energy, not unlike Sam in many respects, but to me, it's much more channeled into process of making good food. And so Evelyn's one of my feel-good stories of the week. And really, I think sort of emerging as one of my feel-good stories of the season. Yeah, the hometown hero. If I just described the dish to you, Kevin, chilled chicken salad on a sesame crisp with an avocado crema, you'd be like, wow, that's going to be bland. Yeah. 
that is going to be bland and chilled chicken. Like nothing about that sounds delicious. And here we go with Tom saying, I, I want another one. It's very, I always feel like you don't want to be the first one to go because I feel like they're going to mute their response. Like the first one to be um, eaten by the, by the chefs, because I kind of feel like they're going to ne- not be too high or too low on a dish because it's the first one. They don't want to come out too hot or cold on a, on a review, but Tom just goes over the top and he's like, I, I, I wanted another, I want another, I want another. And so I was just, I was pretty surprised by that. And right off the bat, man, it seemed like this was going to be probably the best elimination challenge we've seen in a long time. They had Evelyn's, um, the, the chilled chicken salad on the crisp. Then he had Luke with the big upset Luke coming in, uh, giving Padma a crab and corn samosa with a spicy fig and tamarind sauce and got the thumbs up. Yeah. I mean, Tom, I was, I was going to say, you know, I've been hard on Luke. First of all, just looking at the 14 dishes without even tasting them. That's the one I would have wanted if you only allowed me to order one, a crab and corn samosa with a spicy fig tamarind sauce. And then a little hint of mint, which is so smart. Um, I've been like one of the things I've come to appreciate in the last couple of years in the COVID cooking movement in my life is just like mint can do a lot of cool things to sort of, you know, just just either moderate a dish or give it freshness. And I really like Luke conceptually. I, I've been hard on him and I've had some fun at his expense in the first couple of weeks, but I loved the way this dish was conceived. It was what I wanted to eat of the 13 dishes. And I have much respect. I mean, you know, having to do Indian for Padma. Uh, it just – it was good to see him because I really do like his – you know, the descriptions of his dishes are always things that I would be drawn yes, to. He just hasn't yes. executed. But I was really happy to see that. Am I, am I right to say, Tom, that I always like when there's a lot of contestants to say we know who our top three were. They were Evelyn, Jay, and Jackson. But I had it also on my card as if the next three were going to be Luke and Damar, probably 4-5 or 5-4 or five, four, with Nick probably finishing sixth. Is that what you had kind of? I don't know. Have we talked about this doing our own card here? Because going into the final judges table, I had Jay, Jackson, and Damar as my top three. Right, right, right. But right behind them, I was thinking about Nick and I was thinking about Luke. So those six were kind of the winners in terms of they had dishes that were beyond reproach of different quality. Let's talk about Nick here because Nick, you know, he draws Japanese food and I think he or DeMar like made a joke about how he's, you know, it's not his specialty. And I looked up for Nick, Kevin, U.S. Japanese population percentage by state in the United States. So I looked up where Mississippi ranks in terms of Japanese population. Right. So let me guess. Let me guess. Let me guess. I like these games. Obviously, Hawaii is number one, first and foremost. Yes, Hawaii is number one with 14% of its population Japanese and by far number one. I would imagine that the next two are California and Washington State. Wow. Ding, ding, both. One, Hawaii, two, California, three, Washington State. Wow. And then after that, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I, maybe Nevada, maybe. That, that's number four. Yep. Oh, sh- oh, this is great. Okay, okay. All right, hold on, hold on. And then after that, I have no idea. It'd be like Oregon or maybe ah! New York. Four, what? four Nevada, five Oregon. Oh, okay, so could I go to six? Okay. Let's go six. Okay, so let's see. It would be the Arizona, New York. I'm going to guess New York. Ah, number nine. Oh, that was amazing. You went, what, what was, what, wait, six, you seven, went five for five. All right, so here we go. This is this is USA.com. I don't know if this – I mean, this is just the first thing popping popping up and maybe I'm, I'm this is not uh maybe this is all fake news but i, I it looks 
based on U.S. This is 2010 data. Um, it goes one Hawaii, two California, three Washington, four Nevada, five Oregon, and then a two-way tie. You have Colorado and Utah. Western United States, yeah. Eight Alaska, nine New York. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. And then that's also tied with D.C. So D.C.'s in there as well. Okay, yeah. All right, so that was the top 10. That was the top 10. The lowest Japanese population in America by state, the state with the lowest Japanese population is Mississippi. So Nick comes in with a decisive disadvantage here um, using that as a rubric. And man, the the fried Karaji just, he nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. Nick, one of our last picks in the draft. Um, he's on your team. You got to feel really confident about him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, I mean, competent chef here, right? Damar also, uh, in the, in the sort of, along with the sort of the, the early, we talked about Luke, we talked about Nick Damar is sort of a non top three finisher who did well. Yep. He did a smoked ham hock oh, miso soup, which is brilliant. That dish number one on my book, on my and menu. Togarashi, which, you know, is, um, you know, is that the lovely? You know, when you go to the Japanese izakaya, and that's that little, little uh, red pepper tube, you know, with the with the small spout that is togarashi. Uh, so he did that. So those are kind of our, our top six. But obviously, our winner, our winner, Tom, did not see this coming Whew. from your team, Jay. Yeah, Jay seemed like the, I was a little worried about the katsuji effect here. Is that katsuji just kept throwing? ingredients in there and he had 30 ingredients and it was just too much going on. Jay seemed like she put the kitchen sink in this dish and it all worked. It was brilliant. She did the the stir fry noodle with Korean melon, the sausage and ramen. And she gave a little bit of her hometown flavor with the Korean melon, which really surprised the judges. And I kind of love that about this is that she brought some of that Korean food in this Chinese dish. Uh, she loved going to the market and seeing that and putting it into the dish, a little bit of her own story in this. I mean, we might look back on this dish as being one of the top dishes of the season because I think it not only tasted good, but it brought in the 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 actual narrative of her. And yeah, I was really excited to see this one. What was interesting is she's the only person who did noodles. I think most of us have sort of you know, Jackson's opinion, which was he wanted to do pho, but you can't really walk around a night market with a mm. bowl of noodles. Maybe the issue with soup is true, but one of the things I noticed, like, so like when I went to the ballpark um, in uh, in Hiroshima, like I went to a baseball game in, in Japan, it was like, no, people were at their seats in the ballpark slurping noodles the way Americans eat hot dogs. So it was surprising that she's the only person who decided to do noodles because it actually is quite a common night market kind of you know, street fair, street food, if you will. Like it's much more common you would think, even though I think to an American, the idea of slurping noodles while you're walking, you know, down a market <laughs> or is, is sort of foreign. Um, and it worked, right? I mean, she does his. I mean, so many nice little touches. You said the melon, uh, which is a nod to sort of her her, her, her her Korean cooking. Crispy ramen, right? Like like take the ramen noodles and kind of crisp them to give it the texture you would want with that delicious, moist, chewy noodle. Um, you know, Szechuan sort of oil is such a nice coating for any kind of noodle. I mean, she just kind of hit it out of the park. Um, and, and Jackson, who essentially I think it's fair to say either came in second or third, as you said, with the no taste buds, the idea of reducing his beloved pho down to kind of a gel or, or whatever it was kind of really, you know, 
what was sort of a brilliant way to do his for dipping sauce for his spring rolls, which is another risky one because, you know, spring rolls is spring roll, right? Like easy to get a B plus, A minus, hard to get an A kind of dish. He clearly got an A. Um, but those were our top competitors. And as you said, Tom, we're talking about when we talk about Evelyn, we talk about Jackson, we talk about Jay, we're talking about shift testants that we picked in the middle or even lower middle of the draft. Parody, parody, Kevin. Parody, fascinating week. Any great impressions here going forward? I mean, what are we learning so far three weeks in? Top down, it is parody. I mean, we had DeMar, DeMar in our scoring rubric. He has the, the most fantasy points, 15 at this point. Um, of course, sweeping last week and finishing in the middle. He's got to be considered the favorite here uh, because of his execution and that that uh, smoked ham hock miso soup had me written all over it like I would – I would eat that by the gallon. Um, I would bathe in that. Whatever whatever dish he put together in the next episode, probably going to love that one too. So Damar has got to be considered, if not the favorite, uh, one of the favorites. He's got to be the favorite going forward. I agree with you. I, I want to jump into Damar. You know, he said something interesting, which was he doesn't know a thing about Japanese cooking. That might be true. But I don't know if there's a chef in the competition who knows more intuitively about umami. Yeah. And we've seen in every one of his dishes – Japanese or non-Japanese, the guy just understands how to tap sort of the broad palette of, of savory. And I think that like, yeah, dude, you not know anything about Japanese cooking. You know everything about Japanese cooking because your instincts just guide you to that place. And I'm with you. Look, look, I'm not going to act like some genius for drafting him. He was what was left on the board for the most part. God, we were wrong. And it's interesting to watch. Real quick, I want to ask you about Robert's choice with the shrimp paste. What did you think about that? I think Robert is demonstrating that he also has some pretty good ins- – like like he's creative. I know it doesn't look that way, but even his choices in that particular uh, – you know, the marinated grilled chicken thighs, it's a good Filipino way to go. And the fermented shrimp paste, which I think you know the chefs applauded him on. If anything, there was maybe in, in uh, Tom's estimation, might have been a little too much of it. But he's creative, and I obviously did not pick with my top pick the best chef in the competition. I don't worry about him for a while. I really don't. Like I'm not worried about him for a while. Now, I, I like I, I'm not going to clearly not get a guy who's going to finish routinely in the top three, but I also am confident that Robert's not going to be a, a regular presence in the bottom three at least for a few weeks yeah i see him in the middle of the pack here along with sarah and monique and i was wondering you know last week we discussed sarah as a trade target um for team haverstrow we didn't get anywhere in the off you know off air um but i'm just i'm wondering sarah what would it take for sarah to come over to uh team team haverstrow is anything i mean i have ashley buddha luke monique and jay left on my board would it would you take Monique for Sarah straight up? Not right now. I, Monique kind of, you know, it was very funny you say that because as I was watching, be honest, Tom, I didn't want to, you know, I don't want to share my hand, but I was very much scouting Monique this week quietly. So as not to. Mm, you had a couple of scouts on the road? Yeah. And, you know, I, I thought she made an odd choice. And it's not the rice cakes, which I think are actually kind of lovely and can be silky and chewy and a great street food. Did she? I mean, what I got from the judges is she did not stir fry that stuff together with the pork belly, pea sprouts, and fermented beans. Right? By the way, a, a really fun, interesting dish, but somehow she—that—that that was an odd choice to me. Um, not the dish itself, but if, apparently, if she did not kind of, you know, saute it together in a, in a, in a big wok, uh, 
or some kind of mechanism. Like she just didn't – it wasn't unified as a dish and I thought that was very strange. I mean the, the question you're basically asking me is, is at this point forward, who do I think will have more points, Sarah yeah, and yeah. Monique? Sarah on the other hand does give me pause and I, and I will tell you why. Um I mean, even though I'm, I'm kind of betraying the, the – we're doing a show for our, our listeners, so I, I have to kind of give up a little more of my thought process than I would to a trading partner. But, you know, she's got some bad judgment, not in the sense that her food is bad because they actually liked her charred heart. I mean, I love like like chicken hearts and, and beef hearts are just wonderful to prepare, and, and I've got I've got a recipe here that I've, I've used over the years. Um uh, with a marinade with a knot of seeds that I love to do, um, kind of Peruvian style. But you know how in the chickpea challenge, like she just kind of went for the canned chickpeas and kind of blew up, blew it off as a component. She did the same thing with bread this week, right? You're buying some baguette, which I understand you're doing banh mi for a hundred, but then it just, you don't do anything with it. Like you're just going to, like you can't, you're not making a kid's lunch, Right. Like like if you're doing bon me and you're counting on mass produced or non mass, I mean, just bakery bread like, you know, Gail's right. You need to char that thing. You need to do something. You can't just put this hunk of, of, of liver mousse on a store brought piece of bread and just expect to get anywhere in this competition against Evelyn, who's like scooping up rambutan. <laughs> you know, piece by piece, right? Really going into an effort. There's a lack of TLC in Sarah's cuisine right now. Now, I don't know that it's fatal. It's the kind of mistake that I think you can kind of fix along the way. But, you know, it's the second week in a row where she didn't respect one of the components of the dish. And that just pisses off top chef judges. It just does. A little worried for Sarah. Because of the fact that she had that opening FaceTime with her fiance and she brags that she hadn't gotten shit canned yet. Now, what did you determine that those things come like that's a statement that she's going to get sent home? In the yeah, next couple weeks? it's a little ominous. Whenever we do like the, the family FaceTime to open the show, I do believe early on, at least it was a harbinger for an exit. So... You know, I got a little nervous about that because, you know, I did try to trade for her and I thought maybe you might have hit me with a text like, you know what, I'm going to trade. I'm going to trade Sarah. And and that didn't happen. So she didn't get sent home. But I'm still a little nervous because once you do the little family callback, it feels like your days might be numbered on the show. Uh, bring that out really early. So Sarah, Monique, straight up, you're still. No. Would you trade Jay and sell high on Jay? Uh, so you're saying sell high. I, I know what you're doing here. I know what you're doing here. Hey, I'm not getting those points. You get those. You get to keep those points, Tom. Yeah, I still like Jay. Still like Jay. Um, no, I'm gonna. I'm gonna sit. Damn, you would. You know what? You would have done that shit last week. Yes, I would. Yeah. Yeah. I would have, but not anymore. So recency bias again. The Korean Cajun sensation. I gotta tell you, Tom. I'm having a hard time formulating strong feelings about any of these chefs right now. I really am. This is the hardest season to handicap this far in. I mean, we're three weeks in and I still don't know what a lot of these chefs are made of. I do know that Sam is made of potato. Yes, he is. He is Mr. Potato Man. Sam, please pack your knives and go. This experience was so much fun, you know, like, yes, it's heartbreaking, but then I keep remembering I have my right hand, I have my left hand. That's all I need. Sam, last chance kitchen will get a chance. Maybe you can grill a potato and make it work. I don't know. Or maybe not. Sounds good. 
Take care. Bye, Sam. Any closing thoughts, Tom? Yeah, real quick. I just want to give a quick roundup of Last Chance Kitchen. It was Leah versus Stephanie, and it was an amazing competition. Kevin, they did a, a rigor mortis rattlesnake with an alligator. Like the, Stephanie had to do an alligator, and Leah had to do the rattlesnake. And Leah was just terrified of snakes. She's like, "No, no, 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 and I, I can't do that. I can't. This is this is. I'm, I'm afraid of snakes. Anything about snakes, I can't do." And yet, she makes popcorn shrimp style. Uh, rattlesnake and just nailed it. And Tom loved it. Uh, Stephanie did a pepper soda marinated alligator, lightly fried, but just wasn't as flavorful. So Leah, whoever would have thought, last chance kitchen, Leah comes back with a rigor mortis rattlesnake popcorn style and pulls out the victory. She moves on. But of course, in our scoring system, as Mays, our producer pointed out, what happens? Leah's kind of the orphan on our, on our top chef fantasy teams. Cause she was not drafted, but she gets one point for, Oh, you know what? Maze, you get to have Leah. That is your team member. She gets back onto the show on Last Chance Kitchen. She might win the whole damn thing. She wins the first round against Stephanie. Leah will face Sam next week in Last Chance Kitchen. We'll have the recap next week. But yeah, total parody, total open race so far. Three weeks in, we have Robert winning, Damar winning, and Jay winning. It's an open field. Let's see what happens. Wide open field. For Tom Havistro, this is Kevin Arnovitz, and this is Pack Your Knives. 